Our Old Testament reading is from Jonah chapter 1. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittal, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away and the Lord from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. And the captain went to tell him and said, How can you be asleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. And then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they asked him, Tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. And this terrified them. And they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. And so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased." And then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are all full of sin, and you are not. We are all fickle, prone to wander, and you are not. We fall, we stumble, we do things we shouldn't be doing, we do not do things we ought to do, but that is not you. But Lord, you have come to us in our weakness, in our sin, and you have rescued us, and you've called us to your kingdom to understand our purpose in this world, to measure our steps and to give us a hope that is beyond this world. And so Lord, we pray that you would be with us by your Spirit and that you would enlighten our hearts so that when we go out from here, we might serve you with gladness. And all this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, it's technically today Epiphany Sunday. Now, as good Presbyterians, we don't celebrate Epiphany Sunday. We have a much more limited calendar. Epiphany Sunday is one of those days that actually helps us sort of think about the gospel story, and it encourages us to some new actions or thoughts. 
Now, Epiphany Sunday comes after the celebration of December 25th or Christmas. Of course, no one in the history of the church has ever believed that Jesus was actually born on December 25th. He was born sometime in the spring. But we always celebrate it on December 25th, in part because December 25th is the darkest day of the year. And what better day to celebrate the coming of the light of the world than on the day when it's darkest, fastest in the night. It doesn't affect us as much in Florida, but if you've ever lived up north, you know it can get dark as early as 3.30, 4 p.m. around the time of December. Epiphany is a time when we celebrate the coming of the Magi to offer gifts and to bend the knee to Christ. It's a day where the church tends to think about and talk about and reflect on things related to the enfolding of the Gentiles into the church, into God's people. The day in which the fulfillment of all the expectations that God would be the God of the nations is begun even with simply the birth of Christ. And it is at least one of the thoughts behind the pastoral staff and the elders launching not only a sermon series on Jonah today, but also with our missions conference later this month. It's a time to think about the nations. It's a time to think about what Christ means, not just for us, but for all of the people of this world and for all the people who are out there sharing the gospel with them. And so we come to Jonah with that really in our minds, in part, which is, what is the God of the nations about in our world? What is he doing? And I can begin with a bit of an analogy. Um, Some of you know uh, I have a bit of a hobby. I I got into photography uh, a while back. You've probably seen me walk around with a stupid camera hanging off my shoulder uh, from time to time lately as we've been taking pictures of things uh, for the new website, whatever. Uh, It just became a hobby. It was just something that uh, a student and a good friend of mine uh, is a professional at it. He started to give me advice. I thought, well, that sounds like a fun hobby. Uh, it, it just sort of evolved in my life, and it, it's been a pleasure to serve the church in, uh, in that way. But it's just a hobby of mine, and so I'm a complete rookie. I know squat about it, um, which actually makes me quite happy. I can learn something from the ground up for once that have to stick in my world where I'm supposed to know everything, which I don't. Um, but to learn something from the ground up means I'm, I'm a rookie, and I'm always asking all kinds of questions. I'm learning all kinds of new little twists and turns. And one of the ones that I've learned lately, actually I think applies in an analogy to Jonah. If you've ever seen one of those long sort of shotgun lenses, those big sort of National Geographic things that people reach out and they don't want to get near the lion, so they stand far away and take a long shot of the lion from far away. It's called a super telephoto lens. It can get quite far away, uh, depending on the cost and the professional uh, that is using it. You can get some that can reach, you know, hundreds and hundreds of meters away and appear to be a close-up of whatever you're taking a picture of. One of the things that's interesting about that, though, is when you do that, what you actually end up doing in a purposeful way is you flatten the image. When you're far away and you're looking at something off on the horizon, you zoom in on it very far away. The image actually plays a bit of a trick on the eye if you ever see a picture of one of these things where the foreground and the background appear to be on the exact same plane. It's just a flat image. And so I was looking at a picture of this recently. A photographer, some of you might know the name, Art Wolf. And he took a lot of pictures of safari scenes, this kind of thing. He had one shot, big shot, where he had these large African elephants 
Situated with the background being mountains, and up in the top right-hand corner was a sun. If you were to look at the picture and to sort of not just look at it, but try to see what it's doing, it actually appears flat. It appears as if the elephants are on the mountains and the sun is on them. Flattened image, it's just one composite picture. What's interesting, though, is as you shorten the lens, two things have to happen. One, you have to get closer to the subject. So you get these one of the little snubby lenses. You have to be right on top of the person to get a picture. But the other thing that it does is it separates the things in the picture when you're looking at it as a picture. You can suddenly tell that the elephants are not near the mountains. They are miles and miles away from the mountains. And that the sun is obviously much further on than that. If he had had a short lens and been up on these elephants, you would have, it would have been completely obvious to the eye that this is a massive scene of a, of a vast jungle. But because of the way he'd taken the shot, it looked as if it was just one simple picture where they were all in the same plane. In essence, that's what's going on in Jonah's context and in his world. You see, because God had all the way back from the beginning talked about his focus on the nations. Now, from the beginning, he had given just a compressed, flat picture. It begins actually in Genesis 3. He says, I am going to take care of this sin problem, to paraphrase it. Genesis 3.15, God says to Adam and Eve, the serpent will strike the heel but your seed will crush his head. That, in essence, is the entirety of the gospel right there. Sin will be taken care of. And then you step forward a little bit into the book of Genesis, and you get to Abraham. And what Abraham has done is he has been called out, and he has been promised what? That his descendants will number as the stars of heaven. And there are actually innumerable moments where God says, actually, I'm for the nations. I'm calling you out, particularly Abraham. I'm calling a particular people out of Israel. But you are to be a holy nation, not for yourselves, but for the rest of the world. And what has happened by Jonah's time, though, is they have forgotten this. Not only that, but as we'll see here in a minute, they actually don't like, <laughs> as they get closer and closer to what God is doing in the world, as he is actually reaching out to actual pagans, when they get to that scene, it suddenly strikes them as they don't like what they're seeing. So maybe they had read Genesis 3.15 and they said, yes, you will crush the serpent's head. But when they actually got to the moment where God said, now go and apply the gospel to folks, so, oh, no, 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 we're not doing that. We, we didn't say yes to that, Lord. We said yes to all the good stuff, not actually speaking to our enemies about the kingdom. And so what's happened over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years is Israel has gotten uncomfortable and disobedient to the call. And so Jonah drops squarely into this world. And the whole point of Jonah is the simple paradox, you might say, that a prophet will not do what God says because it means that he has to go to people who are not like him. And so he runs the other way. So we're going to look at three things today. We're going to look at the context of Jonah. I'm going to tell you a bit more of this, this backdrop. But we're going to look at Jonah's disobedience, and then we're going to look at grace in Jonah. Because believe it or not, for as um, much of a downer this book can feel like sometimes, as much as it's almost existential, the way Jonah deals with all these problems, in the end, it's actually full of grace. It's full of how God deals 
not only with sinners like those in Nineveh, but how he deals with the disobedient son of his. And so we're going to look at all three of these things. First of all, the context. What has happened with Jonah, and it doesn't say this at the beginning of the book, is he's coming in a very particular context of the Old Testament. Now, this is not made easy for us because when they arranged the Old Testament, they didn't put the prophets in chronological order. They put them in order of their size. You ever notice that? The large prophets are the beginning, and it just kind of scales down from there. Well, some of these prophets might have come before, might have come after the other one. And so when you come to a book like Jonah, it's, it's situated in a spot, you're thinking, all right, is this after Isaiah? Is this, where is this in the, in the chronology that's going on in Israel? And it just seems to drop out of thin air. Well, what has happened in the Old Testament by this point is a lot of chaos. Of course, I mentioned Abraham. Well, what had happened to Israel is they were called out. We, of course, know the story of Exodus. Moses brings the people out. And Moses gives them in the first five books of the, New Te- of the Old Testament a charge from God to establish a kingdom and a holy nation. And it had rules and it had obligations as to how they were to live in the land. Two of the most important obligations are pretty obvious. One, don't worship other gods, people. Come on. Don't put other idols in the temple. Don't do other things. Don't do other rituals. Don't get in bed with all of the religions that are around you. Don't syncretize, we might say today. The second thing, it's not always as obvious, but it was very important. It's that the kings of Israel were not supposed to rely either on their own military strength, nor were they to make partnerships or alliances with other kingdoms to protect themselves. Why? Well, it's the same reason as they wouldn't worship other gods, to put your strength and your hope in an alliance of some other uh, nation, or to count your troops and say, ha ha, I got the big army now. I'm on my own. I got my own strength, is to fundamentally deny what the truth of Israel is, which is that it relies on God alone for strength. And you see this repeated over and over and over again where kings and kingdoms throughout Israel fail. There's a high watermark in the about two centuries before Jonah, though. That high watermark, the best of the best, two centuries before Jonah, is David. Is in the 900s B.C. And David does right by God. He establishes the kingdom. He, put, he puts it on a firm foundation. He is a man after God's own heart. His son Solomon does relatively well. He syncretizes a bit. But David's grandson, Rehoboam, messes the whole thing up. He's cocky. He's got swagger. He's arrogant. And he incites a civil war. And so Israel splits in the 900s, just two centuries before this. It is now the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south. The north is Israel. They retain the name Israel. The south becomes known as Judah. And what happens then is certain prophets are sent to the north. Certain prophets begin to be sent to the south where God says, wake up. Get back to what I said before. Stop relying on other gods. Stop relying on the idols of your heart. Stop relying on these military alliances with other kingdoms. Come on, wake up, which is why the prophets are so sometimes harsh if you ever read through them. But some are sent to the north, some are sent to the south. 
What has happened then by Jonah's time, 200 years after David, is it's all starting to crumble. We are on the verge of what we call the exile, which is a kingdom from outside the world comes in, conquers Israel, and carts them off to what feels like they're going back to Egypt. They essentially lose the land. Jonah's writing just before the collapse. So what happens then is Jonah actually appears within a context and he appears within a world that is actually kind of screwed up. It's actually kind of messed up. They're not doing the things that they ought to be doing. And they're syncretizing and making alliances with those on the outside world that they were not supposed to be doing this with. We know this about Jonah because he actually shows up earlier in the Old Testament, just once in a stray passage, 2 Kings chapter 14. It says that Jonah preached in the north. So he's up in Israel. It says that he preached during the reign of Jeroboam II, and it says in 2 Kings that Jeroboam conducted wickedness. That his father Jeroboam I had done evil in the eyes of the Lord, and Jeroboam II, whom Jonah did prophecies with, same thing. What it mentions, though, in that passage, very, very sort of in passing, is that it was a time of prosperity for the north. That for all the warnings they were getting, they were actually doing all right. The economy was up. Things began to flourish. They actually reconquered lands that they had lost before. And here Jonah is, you might say, feeling his oats. He's up there, in fact, they say, preaching blessing on the north. Preaching blessing to a world that is having trouble understanding its actual purposes. Within about 50 years of Jonah's life, the north is utterly destroyed. Assyria, the folks far off to the northeast, come in and conquer them and destroy them. They were the big kid on the block. Israel was the small one. The north tries to make partnerships with other countries. It utterly fails as the Bible, as God had told them it would. And so the north is lost. And they begin to be intermarried with other, king, other nationalities and other gods. And it becomes a very syncretistic world. Later, the south would fall as well, but at this point, it is the north that is under the sort of white-hot light of God's judgment. What does that mean for Jonah? Well, it means that everything we're reading here is meaningful in the context of a people that have abandoned God. This is not just some guy that decides he doesn't like what he hears. This is a man who was born into a context and into a world that is utterly clouding his judgment and forcing him, driving him to succumb to what he wants rather than what God is telling him to do. You see, the reality is is that Jonah, as a prophet, if he hears a word from the Lord, his job is to simply to do it. The prophet never thinks that he is supposed to sort of embroider the message. He's supposed to go where he's supposed to go, and he's supposed to do what God says to do. Here a message comes to God, and by the way, this is the only context that I've found, or the only evidence example that I've found, of a prophet going, no, I'm not doing that. It's the only case of this in the Old Testament. But what happens? Well, God comes to Jonah and he says, go to Nineveh. It's a city that we probably know the name of, but where's Nineveh? It's in the northeast. It's the capital of the Assyrians. 
It's the capital of the folks who will eventually come and destroy the northern part of Israel. They're not just generic pagans. They are the epitome. They are the poster children of the enemies of the Lord. They are the people that are, if they were to say, who are we against? Them, up there, the Assyrians. Israel had this identity that they were God's people and these folks, like the Assyrians, are the utter example of the people God will have nothing to do with. They are too far removed. They are too far into their pagan idolatry to ever hear from anything from a prophet. And God says, go to them. Go talk to Nineveh. Now, what's interesting about this passage is God doesn't say, go be nice to Nineveh. (laughs) He doesn't say, go simply preach prosperity to them. Actually, it says, preach against Nineveh. That doesn't mean that God is going to destroy them. It means preach warning. It's very much a thing that a prophet would do. Be very careful. God is going to judge this nation. God is going to judge this. Lots of prophets did this. But what Jonah hears is that God is going to do something to redeem Nineveh. See, Jonah knows what God will do. He actually is aware of God's actions. God is a God of mercy and grace. And he knows that if he offers a potential warning of of destruction, that chances are they'll listen. And then the people you thought never ought to be with us, that ought never to bend the knee to your God, will suddenly be bending their knee to your God. And so he picks up, and in the geography of it, he actually flees in the exact opposite direction. He's in the north, he's supposed to go northeast, he goes, nope, and he goes the exact opposite direction to the Mediterranean Sea, he gets on a boat and says bye. As fast as possible. What then plays out, though, is a very, very interesting moment for Jonah and for Israel. Israel is supposed to be reading this, obviously, as them as well. Jonah gets on the boat, and it doesn't say much about these sailors, but these are the bozos we're talking about. These are the syncretizers. These are the people who worship their own gods. Now, very few, very few people point out that they're actually living in the land of Canaan, by the way. They're actually living at a port city that is the land of Israel, and yet there are all these pagan sailors that they can get on a boat and go with says a little bit of something about what's happening in Israel, the syncretizing. But Jonah gets on the boat, and God sends calamity. And he sends this storm, in essence, to affect Jonah's repentance. And so what is Jonah's disobedience? That's the second thing we're looking at. Jonah's disobedience is that he will not abide by God's word because he doesn't like what it means. The context is disobedience, but the, sorry, the context rather is Israel's disobedience. Jonah's disobedience is he's just simply not doing what he's told. He runs. So what happens? Again, the storm comes, and the scene here is actually very, very instructive. There are a lot of little um, uh, things that would make an Israelite smirk. They're little comments and phrases that the sailors use. They don't jump off the page to us, but anyone who knew their Old Testament and knew the Hebrew would actually be, at least uh, have a wry grin on their face. Uh, It's a bit of a dark humor. What do I mean? Well, the sailors 
When the storm comes, it says they begin to call out to their own gods. That is, if you again, if you go back through all the Old Testament, that is in essence Baal worship or Baal worship, as we call it. Baal worship, of course, is not simply one god. Baal just simply means Lord in the old language, uh, in, the, in the languages of the ancient Near East. Baal was just simply Lord. It was your God. It's much the same way people today call, say the word the Lord, and they could mean any about 50 different things. Lord doesn't actually mean Christ, unless you're a Christian. But you could say Lord, this and that, and mean all kinds of different things today. That's what Baal meant in the ancient world. Well, the Baal prophets basically is this way where it's kind of choose, you know, remember those old books, Choose Your Own Adventure? It's got to choose your own God. You take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and you kind of smash it together. And usually what you would create in these religions or in these uh, worship systems is something that advantaged you in whatever profession or walk of life you had. In, these, in this case, all these sailors have invented, in, in essence, Gods that were supposed to keep the winds calm and the seas calm and make the ship sort of go across a glassy sea and land at port and sell their goods and make lots of money so they could go back and be rich. What happens then is the storm comes and they try this and it fails. And every Israelite would say, of course it's going to fail. They're praying to nobody. They're praying to a god of their own invention. Of course it's going to fail. What happens, though, is they get so despondent at the lack of attention from their gods that they start to try to figure out, again, through some sort of magical uh, process, the casting of lots in this case, who they're going to blame. This time, it actually falls on the right guy. It falls on Jonah. And the captain goes and says, Jonah, what have you done? That's one of those lines that a Hebrew would have heard and said, oh, dear. Because that phrase is actually used at the very beginning in Genesis 3 when God confronts Adam and his sin. Adam, what have you done? Is the first thing God says to him. Here a pagan is confronting the prophet of God, the man who is the Hebrew, the man who is called of God, and he actually echoes the words of God. He doesn't know he's doing it. But those words actually have this kind of hit-you-in-the-gut sense for a man like Jonah, what have you done? What is your sin? Why have you done this? And along the way, Jonah gives some very curious things about himself. He refers to himself as a Hebrew, which is a word that Israelites would use to describe themselves to foreigners. It was this kind of beat your chest, that's right, I'm a Hebrew. I said it, I'm a Hebrew. It had a lot of oomph behind it when dealing with the pagan world around them. And he says, I worship the true God. He kind of puts himself over against them. And he says, yeah, you're up there worshiping all your false gods. I worship the real one of the land and the sea. Jonah, in this case, doesn't really expect much to happen. But much as he's running away from Nineveh so that pagans don't hear and believe, that's exactly what happens on this ship. They end up throwing him overboard. And they end up, it says being amazed. They worship God and they make vows to Him. It's conversion. So even in the midst of Jonah's disobedience, God is at work. But the point of what Jonah is doing is he is doing everything he possibly can to not listen to God. 
If you were to put it very simply, it's like this. Israel had defined God's people as them, their DNA, their blood, and anyone who looked like them. God was not going to be involved with anyone who looked different. God was certainly not going to be involved with people who did really bad things. Because why? Well, we've cleaned ourselves up, Israel would say of themselves. We have righteousness. We have the law. We have the sacrifices. We do it right. Those people up there do not. Those people that are pagans do not. They're messed up. They're screwed up. They're not like us. We are Hebrews. They are not. So what does this mean for God's people today? It means the exact same thing. It means that disobedience is not a new thing. It means that we have to check ourselves whenever we want to say that the gospel looks like this and it comes from this world and this is what it looks like to be a Christian. For example, older generations, grandparents and parents, how often do we look on younger generations and say they have utterly screwed everything up? These millennials are just messing everything up. How dare they not live like they grew up in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, whatever it might be? How dare they act differently? How dare they look differently? How dare they not be concerned about the same things I'm concerned about uh, in this world? Younger folks, how often do we look up at the older generations and say, they're calcified, boring, old, silly, I've got the real faith. I'm actually living it authentically. They're not. All right, let's go one step further. How often do we look at other parts of the world and say the gospel can't go there? It's too dark, they're too backwards, they're too screwed up over there for the gospel to ever have any root, to have any purpose there. How often do we make the gospel Western? That what the gospel is supposed to do is clean us up, put us in suits and ties, and make us very respectable. Because you see, what Jonah is being asked to do would be like someone today being called to go preach to ISIS or some other part of the world where there is trauma. Or in the mid part of the 20th century, it'd be like someone being called to Russia. Or in the early part of the 20th century, called to Nazi Germany. Go to your worst enemies and share the gospel. Jonah is being asked. And that's true of God's people in general. It's probably certainly true of us individually. We pass somebody on the street who may be homeless. And our mind doesn't first say, that's the image of God. I wonder if they could hear the gospel. Our mind might first say, what kind of screwed up world did you come from that you did this to yourself? I thank God I'm not like you. I'll cross on the other side of the street. There's a lot of disobedience in God's people. We do this a lot. Jonah's not the only one. We make it about us, our identity. We make it about my context, my generation, my worldview. <clears throat> and we forget that God doesn't get off his throne. He doesn't abandon generations of people 
He doesn't have a high water mark of you're the best, I'm the best, this is as good as it's going to be, and everyone else around us is the messed up people. We are those messed up people. We were the ones who had nothing and He called us. We were the ones who needed Him, He called us. We had empty hands and He gave us bread. And so then, when we go from that context, everything around us becomes an opportunity for the Gospel. In our world, in our workplaces, in our homes, as we send out missionaries and we send people to the parts of the world that people think we're crazy to send people to. Why do we do that? Because we're trying not to be like Jonah or Israel in this time. We're trying to understand that God will have His people when He will have them, how He will have them, no matter what. He will affect His purposes. He doesn't go to sleep and take a nap. He is always God and He is always about the nations. And so therefore, to not be disobedient like Jonah doesn't mean that every single one of us is going to get up and go on the mission field. It's okay if that's not your calling. You may not be a radical goer on missions, but one of the things you could think about is being a radical sender for missions. Praying with the church for our missionaries that we support. Understanding what it takes to go to those parts of the world to give up immediate contact with family, to give up all kinds of things to go, and we could be radically supportive of the mission field. We could also always look in our day-to-day interactions, our day-to-day lives, the places where we are, in a small way, enacting that same disobedience that Jonah does, of assuming that to be Christian is to be perfect and cleaned up and not be subject to the sins of this world. Which is just the same thing the Pharisees did to Jesus. I'm pray God, I pray to God and thank Him that I'm not like those people, they would say. And Christ actually warns them. There is a sign of Jonah coming upon you, He tells them. And He refers to this book. He's not just referring to His own death and resurrection. He's also referring to their ongoing disobedience in Israel. And Christ says, wake up. It's happening again and again and again. You think to be Christian, or so to be, to be God's people is to have a certain bloodline. That means nothing. The important thing is to understand God's focus. As God is unfolding His plan, He is for the nations. He is for every single person. Everyone you come in contact with is God's image. And the further lost they are, the further it ought to break our hearts, not harden them. Because the point is, is they are God's children in the sense that they are God's image. And what they need is Christ. They need that free gospel that we have ourselves. Now, it's a lot of judgment in our face. (laughs) It's a lot of disobedience that we see in Jonah. Where is God's grace in all this? It can be hard to be confronted with our inabilities, with our messed up ways, with the ways that we sin. It can be hard, especially when we see how much the pattern of someone like Jonah can be lived out in our lives. Where is God's grace in this? Well, it's very subtle, at least to us. To Jonah, it was not. You see, because what Jonah has done is essentially forfeited his life. 
to run from God and to then chase the opposite horizon rather than go to Nineveh, he expected death at some point. He is much like Peter who has denied Christ three times. He expects nothing from Jesus. He expects never to be restored to be an apostle. He expects expects to be cut off. Why? Well, sometimes that is what happens when someone hardens their heart and runs away. Sometimes there's judgment and they keep running and then that's the end. They are no longer part of God's people. Jonah expects this, which is why he says, throw me overboard. He doesn't, he's not holding back, in other words, from simply going, sorry, sorry, okay, I'll go, it's fine, make the wind stop. That's actually, in his world, not actually an option. He's gone the opposite direction. Hurl me overboard is essentially resigning himself to his fate. It's saying, "Uh, I did it. I'm done. I'm done for. God's now fed up with me. He's going to get rid of me. And I can only imagine that at the moment from when they left the sailors, I have this idea that they're going, one, two, and kind of hurling him like you do in a, kid, in a playground. And they just hurl him. I can imagine when he's in the air before he's made splashdown that he's actually going, whoa, this is it. And he lands. And we didn't read the passage. That's for next week when Chuck comes back. But God saves him. He sends the fish to swallow him up for three days before he is spat back out on the beach. But in Jonah's world, to run that as he has, to do all of this, means that he thinks he is not worthy of grace. That he is not worthy of God's um, loving kindness and his steadfastness. Jonah at this point is being like many of us from time to time where we do that thing that we keep trying to stop or we don't do that thing that we keep trying to do and then we wonder, maybe not out loud, but we wonder, is this it for me? Is is God ever going to get so fed up with me that he tosses me out? And we don't say those things out loud, but every one of us from time to time believes it. I did it again. Is this it for me? I did it again. Is this it for me? This is exactly how Jonah feels. And he has every right to. He's done some really wicked things here. He's disobeyed God and he's run off. And at least at this point in the story, it would appear that Nineveh is not going to hear the message of God. A whole city, a whole capital of a country might not hear the message that God is sending because of Jonah's wickedness. Our things don't go up to that level of significance, but they certainly weigh on us. If I keep doing that thing, if I don't stop doing this, if I can't get myself to do this better, maybe I'm not part of God's kingdom. Maybe He will eventually get sick of me. If that's you, and I'm going to say that probably is all of you at some point throughout the week, at least at some point in your life, Hear this. God doesn't deal with His children that way. His children are like you and your children. Would you throw them out for being disobedient? No. You'd discipline them. You'd confront them. Just as God does here with Jonah. He doesn't just pat Jonah on the head and say, there, there, no problem. It's okay. No big deal. He confronts him. God deals with us in the exact same way. 
To assume that conviction for our sin means that God is getting tired of us is to forget what the cross is all about to begin with. The cross is God dealing with that sin that we can't get rid of. And if you name Christ, and if you trust Him, He's dealt with it. In the cosmic ultimate significance, it is gone. What you're dealing with is the leftover dregs of the old man dying. It's not that you're too bad, and it's not like Jonah that you just want to be tossed into the sea and just get rid of me, God. I'm t- I know I've done wrong again. I know you don't want to see this again. I'm sorry. I know I'm back to confess that sin again. It, that's, not, that's being Jonah. That's not being a child of God. Rather, what we say is, it's me again, God. I can't stop this. God is saying, God says through Paul in Romans that the old man is dying. What we keep doing is CPR on our old selves. We keep trying to revive it and resuscitate it and make it more part of our identity. But God is going to deal with it. He is always going to deal with it. The book of Hebrews actually puts it in the language of a family. He says, how many of you, in the context of disciplining your children, would treat them any other way? Of course you would deal with their sin. Of course you would deal with their disobedience. Trust me, in the holidays, a lot of us have been dealing with a lot of disobedient children. A lot of grumpy kids here and there. For those of you that had kids or that are now gone, you can remember all kinds of times where it felt like it was World War III. You can remember all kinds of times where your kids said, do you still love me? Like, yes, of course I do. I'm not getting rid of you. You're mine. You're flesh and blood. But what I am going to tell you is this is wrong because you're my child. God deals with us the same way. In Jonah's case, he expected death, but what he actually gets is repentance eventually. Not perfectly. He's going to still grumble. He's going to still be a sinner. But God is not done with Jonah just as he's not done with Nineveh. And so for God's people today, He is not done with you. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how many sins you've committed in your life. I don't care if if it feels at times like they're getting worse. They're not. Fundamentally, God is dealing with you. One of my colleagues in the New Testament department pointed this out to me recently. He said, if you actually put Paul in chronological order and you look at some of his books, the language that Paul uses to refer to himself gets worse <laughs> as the letters get later in his life. It starts off with Paul, I'm a sinner. By the end, it's Paul, chief amongst sinners. Something about the, the wear and tear of life actually makes us feel a little bit less about ourselves. It makes us own our sin more. Young people, just get ready for it. <laughs> just put it that way. The older you get, sometimes you're going, this stuff ain't going away. Sometimes it feels like it's worse. God is dealing with it. He hasn't fallen asleep. He's still on the throne. He's still your Lord. He's still your Father. And if you're His child, and if you trust Him, He is dealing with it. Don't be like Jonah. Don't be like the Israelites who say the Gospel has cleaned me up so I'm not like them. But also... Own your sin in a way that drives you to Christ. Own your sin in a way that when you have those moments when you want to say, 
is this it for me, God? Have I done it again? I don't really feel passionate about this, and I keep trying to be passionate about this. It's just not happening. Hit the mute button on that in your mind, frankly. Remind yourselves that God is the God of the nations, and He is your God. He is your Father. He's going to be dealing with your sin. If you're disobedient, it's not that it's just okay. He's going to confront it, and it's going to not be a fun process. But it's no different than any of us would deal with our children. He loves us, so He is dealing with our sin. And the fact that we can admit that we have this sin is why we stand before the cross and sing His praises and we're excited about Sundays, we're excited about the opportunity uh, as we begin worship to quiet our hearts and to pray and to confess sin. It's because it might feel at times like it's exposing us. But in what world is hiding our shame and our sin ever been good for us? And what example can we ever find where denying that we are sinners actually means that we are righteous for that? None. But in the curious, upside-down logic of the Gospel, as soon as we say, I am nothing, you get everything. You get grace, you get mercy, you get the cross itself. And you get brought into a kingdom where it has sanctified us and humbled us. So that when we go out from here, and when we think about missions, and when we think about the nations around us, and the people around us, our neighborhoods, that we can say, He has done it for me, when I was far off, may he do it again for anybody that I come in contact with. Let's pray. Father, we believe but help our unbelief. We know we're your children, but at times we forget. We know that we belong to you and that you have a desire for the nations. May we not forget that either. Lord, if we, are your, if we are your children and you tell us that we are, be merciful with us. Love us. Restore us. But above all, Lord, teach us something about Christ so that, may, so that we may walk in his ways. And all this we ask in his name. Amen.